Everybody get up, it's time to slam now. We got the real jam going down. Welcome to the Space Jam. Here's your chance, do your dance at the Space Jam. All right. Welcome to week four of ES250 Intro to African American Sports. I'm Dr. So this week we are in my favorite week. Obviously I'm someone that's very invested and interested in sports as I've previously mentioned before. And this week we're focusing on the African American experience in sport. I think one of the things I'm so interested about, especially when I'm thinking about African Americans in sport, is how sport is a space where black athletes are overrepresented in terms of their number for certain sports and not represented at all in other sports. And so I think there's a way that the logics of racist pseudoscience will say, well, the reason that there's an overrepresentation of African Americans in certain sports, let's think about basketball, we'll talk a lot about basketball today, is because of some innate natural ability to play a sport. There's a way that um, sport can be used as both an achievement of like a very bootstrap logic of, well, just pull yourself up and make an NBA team, even as we have to acknowledge how narrow of a field that is in terms of opportunity um, for economic stability, mobility in a particular way. At the same time, there's a way that sport offers a lens, an opportunity, a platform for African-American athletes that is much more difficult to find for um, citizens in this country of African descent in areas such as politics, for example, or business. There's ways that African-Americans have found success and opportunity and a platform to use their voice in sport that is unlike almost any other part of our society. And so there's a weird paradox here of how sport can be used in the service of African-Americans as well as to um, the detriment of African-Americans in terms of how it is used to propagate this kind of eugenics logic regarding the black body, the way that Capitalism can both commodify and completely contradict itself in terms of representing African-American athletes. And so it's a really rich place where there is, as we've discussed previously, as Stuart Hall says, there's, it's not a zero-sum game. It's not either this is a form of achievement, enlightenment, and complete incorporation into mainstream society, as well as it's not a complete rejection where black bodies are only used in the service of labor to the state if they're competing in the Olympics or to the corporation if they have a Nike check across their chest. And so I think there's a way that we can navigate somewhere in the middle where we can understand the various ways that capitalism is at play, the various ways that there are very racist logics embedded into sport as well as the ways that it is a representation of achievement, of access, of a labor of love, right? Robin D.G. Kelly in his piece will talk about that narrow line between labor and play that's going on, whether it's on the blacktops or it's in a basketball arena in a major city. Before we dig any deeper into sports, I wanna do just a little bit of housekeeping and wanna let you know that as we're looking forward to the next large assignment, you'll have your quiz for this week, which is again, short kind of recapping of, of what you've read and listened to for this week. And one of the things that I wanna really emphasize because this is week four, so we'll have next week where we'll do our TV and film week, and the week after that you'll have a midterm. And so one of the things I want you to think about as you complete your quizzes, is there really a way to prepare you 
for the midterm exam. So this week I'll make sure everyone has all of their, um, their first two quizzes, the playlist assignment returned to you so you have that as we go into week four um, so that you have a better idea of where you stand, not only in the class grade-wise, I don't wanna cause any anxiety there, but I also wanna make sure that you're prepared and understand the depth of questions. So the, the midterm exam will be an exam that is comprised of short answer um, and one to two essay questions. I haven't decided yet, I'm leaning towards one. We're in a pandemic, let's not be ridiculous. So let's say one essay question and um, a series of short answer questions. And I'm not imposing a time limit. Um, I typically do for take home exams. I do love a take home exam. You're obviously welcome to use any of the materials from this course. You are not welcome to use any assistance from a fellow classmate, but um, I'll give a 24 hour window for the exam. So you'll have that time window to take um, your time to write the exam and return it. That'll be all through campus. Um, so. We'll get more into that. We'll I'll also provide a written kind of review. It's just of terms. It won't be super intense, but it'll just be a list of terms and figures you should be able to talk about for your short answer and essay questions. Okay. The other thing that's coming up is the critical cultural essay. There will be a series of them in this class. And they are all short two to three page papers that are using the style of Hanif Abdurraqib and they can't kill us until they kill us. So this isn't your standard kind of research paper. It's not something where I'm asking you to regurgitate the information that has been provided in the podcast or in the text themselves as much as use those as a launching point. So I want you to take the style of the essays in They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us to write about something else. So we've had a week on style, a week on music, a week on sports, and next week we'll have a week on TV and film. So we'll have all of those modules before you have to turn in your paper. So what you wanna do is pick a case study, a moment, something that you connect with. If there's a film, TV show that you really relate to or brings back a memory, you wanna have that personal connection that you read in these essays that he's giving us. And then on top of that, you wanna think about how to incorporate that into a larger narrative that incorporates sources. So you'll read a Hanif piece and he is incorporating a Rolling Stone interview, for example. You don't have to bring in the academic text from this course, but I do want it to be well-researched. If you're talking about a musical artists, I want you to give me a range of who that artist is through the names of their albums, song, song lyrics. So you're, you're really gonna have to dig in a little bit to who the person is outside of, I really love or I really hate this artist, right? So I want the personal connection. Have you been, if you did a music one, for example, I'm thinking about you write a piece about Beyonce and you are reading her through what the formation tour meant to you. And you're talking about yourself at the concert, you give us a wider piece on the promotion of Lemonade, for example, or the halftime show of the Super Bowl where she comes out during Coldplay's performance and provides her own um, intro for us of formation the day after the, the video had dropped. So what you wanna do is give us a history of what we're seeing in a particular cultural moment, what it meant to you personally, and what it means societally. So what does that tell us about the representation and marketing of black women in music, for example? What does that tell us about where we are in terms of the music industry and how artists are promoted to us in a very interesting way that's very different? What does it mean 
to think about this in a larger legacy, what would it mean to connect Beyonce to a blues woman artist in terms of thinking about Lemonade, right? So there are a lot of different ways you can go with each thing. There's no wrong way to go about this outside of making sure you have a personal connection that ties in with one of the four themes that we will cover um, by the time that this assignment is due and making sure it's two to three pages and that you provide uh, citations for anything that you bring in um, to this piece outside of your own experience. I'm more than happy to talk about any of this stuff with you if you wanna go through um, any of the assignments, future ones or you know upcoming ones right now. And I'll provide more on the midterm as we go along. So in the Playing for Keeps chapter by Robin D.G. Kelly, I think it's a really great way to think about the connection between hip hop and basketball that goes beyond this aesthetic that we typically ascribe to this relationship. Instead, we're thinking about it through the public space of the park, the blacktop, where hip hop, whether it's breakdancing, whether it's freestyling, is happening, graffiti happening in the park, as well as the ways that basketball, pickup basketball is occurring in the space. The so-called concrete jungle, he says, powerfully underscores the link between urban decline, joblessness, and the erosion of recreational spaces in the inner city. That's on page 89. And I'm going off course packet page numbers um, for this one. And so one of the things that's interesting um, is that he says that play has increasingly become more than an expression of, of style, right? It's a way to survive for some or a means to upward mobility. So before, there's a way that we could read basketball as a way to think about the innovation on the court, how gender is at play, maybe there's a race and class dynamic that's occurring. But more than anything now when we think about it, we think about it in the ways that there may be a future NBA player or someone may have a chance to play ball at the college level. So then it's no longer just about leisure in terms of play. Now we're playing potentially for pay, right? Or the promise of an economic mobile moment. Much of this chapter considers this idea of the post-industrial. So to understand the post-industrial playground, we first have to understand what the industrial moment was about. So what he's saying here is thinking about the ways in which the industrial revolution and then it's kind of aftermaths in terms of how we establish things like assembly lines, how we think about things like the eight-hour workday emerge from this industrial landscape. Much of that shifts Starting in the 70s and moving forward, we think about all the different things that have happened, for example, with the auto industry in this country in particular. And what he's saying is where the industrial offered new opportunities for African-Americans moving from more rural areas to the urban city where there was new opportunity, new jobs, when there is the inevitable crashing in terms of the economy, in terms of opportunity and jobs, we have all of these folks that have uprooted during the Great Migration and travel to these urban cities in the north and then are left with nothing. They're basically there and they've created community and family in those spaces, but a lot of it has been driven by this economic desire, right? This want for economic mobility for themselves and, and their loved ones. And when we have this post-industrial moment where we're moving to the digital, for example, there's entire generations of folks that are left behind. And so what he's thinking about the post-industrial in terms of what is happening, for example, in places like New York and Philadelphia in the 80s and 90s in particular, as we're, we're building up to the dot-com bubble, 
there's this new influx of labor and innovation under what we would call post-modernity, the post-industrial movement, that fuels these shifts in technology, public space, and capitalism in a particular way that he's pointing to on the basketball court. But we see the ramifications, as he's pointing out, in much bigger spaces in terms of thinking about the ability to work for oneself. So much of thinking about this technology, public space, and capitalism when we think about the post-industrial playground is also thinking about how crime is located centrally at these intersections. When he's talking about the various ways in which crime is perceived to be happening in these spaces, how these various bodies that are in the space, playing basketball, freestyling, breakdancing, are read as criminal. And if we think about that, there's a new kind of moment we're in right now with uh, the closing of parks, especially basketball courts in various cities, without really any community input. There's this idea of we're trying to make this space safer, this space is near a school or a park, and it is no longer safe for its inhabitants. And deciding who is who the space is for and what safety is there is largely read across who seems to just be there in the space, who's allowed or who's, who looks like they could be up to no good. And then there is also the fact that there are there's criminal activity that happens in all types of public spaces. But the basketball court is read in a particular way, he's arguing, um, in this chapter. So the class and erased readings of the basketball space, who it's for, what it's about, what could be going on there, is really going back, he's, he's constantly harkening back to the 1980s as a particularly poignant moment for thinking about public space. He writes that, quote, recession and Reagan-era budget cuts combined with the militarization of urban life has devastated inner-city public recreational facilities and altered the landscape of play significantly, end quote. That's on page 93 in the Course Reader. And so this idea of places like the People's Park, right, that he describes requires a key, or thinking about how there's AT&T-sponsored public spaces or indoor play spaces, whether it's basketball courts or places he describes like Discovery Zone where he's taking his kid. Basketball and the space where basketball is played in these parks, for him in many ways embodies, quote, the dreams of success and possible escape from the ghetto, but in a growing number of communities, pickup games are played for money, much like cards or pool. While it's true that some boys and young men see basketball as a quick, though never easy, means to success and riches, it is ludicrous to believe that everyone on the court shares the same aspirations, end quote. It's on page 95. And what he's pointing to there, there's three things I really want to point out. First, the dreams of success and possible escape do not shield them from the reality of what's going to happen, right? So this idea of I have all kinds of dreams myself, personally, right? So if my dream is I'm going to be Beyonce's best friend, right? I can still have the rooted reality of like where I am, the kind of access I would need for that to happen, etc. So for a lot of people, embodying that dream is I saw this person I really love and respect play this game in a particular way and I'm emulating them on the court and dreaming about what it could be to be them is very different than what he's saying, you know, is happening when people are pushed into sports with the idea that you are pushed in for the exclusive reason of making money, the economic means that could go with that. So there's two things. There's the way that we can see ourselves through people that are on the court professionally. I can see someone play and say, I love LeBron's game. I see myself in him. He's doing great things in the community. I respect him. I'm LeBron when I'm on the court. It's different from I'm going to be the next LeBron and putting all of my sights there. He says that 
some people may see it as a means to success and riches, but it's not an everyone thing. The way that black, you know, the blackness is seen as a pathology of everyone just wants to be a rapper or a basketball player. The way that the, these kind of narratives are read, he's arguing throughout, are not true. And as such, we can think about play and the, the kind of weird purgatory that play lives in terms of African-American communities when we think about that lack of safety, that perception of crime, right, and how bodies can be read that way. So if you think about something like police brutality and how public spaces often become a site where these incidents occur, we can think about it as embodying dreams of success so that there's a way that leisure can, can give us this kind of escape from reality. And then there's a way that there is an economic connection, whether it's, you know, an old man in the park thinks I'm the best player, he's putting his money on me, right? That's like a quick betting, you know, quick betting leisure again that's happening. And then there is the the larger escape, this idea of upward economic mobility that's given through sport. There's some staggering statistics in this chapter. Kelly says that, you know, half a million basketball players in the United States will play at the youth level. Only 2.8% of those will play in college. And half of 1% of those will make it to the NBA. And this is a dated article, so I'm sure it's it's even less likely now, both with thinking about the international connection, how there are more international players than ever before. So the United States, you're also competing against a larger sporting landscape globally, um, more than the 80s and 90s could even have imagined. And these stats are obviously gender. Women get even less of that pie, both in terms of how much money they can potentially make, as well as how many roster spots are available for them. So the difference is thinking about 30 NBA teams versus... 12 WNBA teams. And again, thinking about those spots are also filled by international players. And none of these things are promised. Women also make significantly less than men at the professional level. And this is important because Kelly writes that, quote, one may argue that play is at least important, as important, if not more, than work in shaping gender identities, end quote. That's on page 96. And so thinking about what kind of play is for girls versus what kind of play is for boys both reinforces the gender binary as well as tells us where we are in the world and what our place is. So this happens in ways that are racially defined, what black, what it looks like a black person does for work, right? This assumption sometimes of someone's athleticism. There's also the ways that it's gendered. Girls play with this, boys play with this. Any kind of moving across the line is a cause for concern. And the policing of these boundaries end up reproducing gender inequalities by denying or limiting women access to some of the most profitable forms of creative leisure. So that goes to even things, I think about things like the way that Legos have been, you know, historically criticized for being, you know, gendered towards boys where engineering, for example, uh, Minecraft, the ways in which STEM jobs are heavily rooted in toys geared towards boys, whereas girls toys don't have the same resonance in terms of building these important skill sets that could translate at the end of the day to a labor practice. So play becomes important in establishing the gender regime and understanding what our place should be, what we should be doing. And then to push beyond that is to in many ways be read as deviant. So, you know, on the on the smaller level, if we go lower than the NBA, WNBA in this country, there's things like pickup games, organized street leagues, AAU leagues. The dream of honing one skill to land a scholarship or a trip to the pros is something that immediately gets male centric and more and more so at the elite level. 
And so there have been shifts in that, of course. There have been these moments. But what Kelly is really emphasizing is we have to kind of carve out, um, and we're struggling to carve out this space between work and play, labor and performance. Um, and this isn't a new struggle of understanding what we do with our bodies for fun versus what we do with our bodies for work is blurred. And, and, and even now, more so under a pandemic, it's constantly difficult for me to see where work ends and leisure begins because they're all happening at home. And there isn't this uh, demarcation. You know, for me, it's also time. I don't know if this is like this for any of you, but for me, some days I'm like, is it? What day is it? Is it Tuesday? And it'll be like Thursday. And so my sense of time, it used to be so structured by places I had to be, things I needed to do that were not bound to my home. And now that everything is home-based, every meeting that you have, every assignment, even when I sit and do these podcasts, I'm doing them in a way that lacks the structure that would tell me I teach on Mondays and Wednesdays at this time. I know where I am, where I'm spatially placed in the world. And so work and play many times defines not only our schedule, our structure, right? It's constantly now in flux, but also who we are in terms of our status, in terms of these intersectional identities we have, in terms of our age, our race, our location. What we're doing with our life is very much rooted in all the positionalities we embody. And sport is a very tangible way we can see that for anyone who is supposed to be in the space, who is not. So then there's this shift that goes from thinking about what basketball means in both a leisure space as well as a form of labor. And there's this comparison that occurs with hip-hop, graffiti, breakdancing, rap, etc. And he's drawing a parallel between how these forms are cultivated in the street and commodified by the corporate, especially as it refers to African-American aesthetics. And one of the fun things that I, I like that he makes, there are a few... Um, arguments he makes here that I think are very much up for debate. But one of my favorite ones is thinking about graffiti as a very criminalized art form that then has this emerging moment of being in galleries and museums. And it begins to lose its street cred, um, he says, because it's taken from the streets that it's born out of, the risk that you take by doing graffiti is in many ways part of the skill, what you're able to do before you get caught, Uh, what it means to see your name or your work across the city. What does it mean to, to tag a subway train? And every time you ride that train, you see yourself. It's very different than being in a gallery space that was very safe. You wrote, you, you know, you did your work in a studio. It was then placed within a gallery space. And that, he says, takes away the street cred. However, sport doesn't work the same way. Sport doesn't lose its street cred. In fact, in many ways, it it becomes more valuable in establishing difference that can be sold. So this is going again back to this, what is this black and black popular culture, the Stuart Hall piece, and thinking about what a bit of the other is actually doing in terms of being very valuable. So in many ways, there's a divergence between graffiti and basketball he's making between what the value is both in terms of the communities that this work emerges from, whether it's art or sport, and then how sport becomes more and more valuable the more that it's marketed and kind of shilled out to us, right? He calls um, the responses to sport and graffiti this kind of like a response to the spectacle of performing bodies. 
He says, quote, the physicality of certain sports like basketball, the eroticizing and racializing of the bodies participating in these spectacles, and the tendency to invest these bodies with the hopes, dreams, and aspirations of a mythic, heroic working class keep most popular commercialized team sports at a safe distance from the world of high culture. So some of it is this high-low culture of what the art gallery versus graffiti on the side of a wall means. If sport is already read kind of as a lower culture thing, even as it is an expensive endeavor, if you want to go and have good seats at an NFL game, for example, it's still read far away from high culture in a particular way. And we see that collapsing. Part of postmodernity is about this collapsing of, of high culture and low culture where they can live in the same space, where now there's really cool sports exhibits sometimes that travel around to art museums. There's ways that it isn't relegated to, oh, you're into that. That's for low class folks. That's lowbrow. That's not, that's not a fancy high class affair. There's a way that both in thinking about very rich people that sit in boxes or sit courtside, as well as the way that sport, which is you know read as low culture, can be in these very high culture spaces, is an important collapsing of post-modernity and the post-industrial as well. One of the things that I struggle with in my own work as someone that studies sport is the way that sport isn't taken seriously um, and is just now gaining traction as being taken seriously as an academic endeavor to study sport for a living. What does that mean? Um, and it's something that I've had to obviously argue with and talk about with people, my parents included, about what it means to make a career of this. And some of it is what Kelly is arguing. He says that, quote, when the creative project is the body itself rather than a painting, a sculpture, a book, or even a musical score, it is rendered as less cerebral or cognitive and thus inadvertently devalued. That's on page 102. And I think about what that means when someone tells someone like LeBron James to shut up and dribble. Much of that is rooted in this idea of being less cognitively developed, less cerebral. It definitely has some racial undertones that are very much coming out when something like that is said. But it's also about thinking about the, the range of what sport is supposed to be in terms of a spectacle of the body and is read differently than something like an author, a painter, musician in a particular way. And so there's a way that athletes are very much having to fight back to be read as serious, to be taken at face value as something worth listening to, taken as someone that can express themselves politically, artistically, that can do other things outside of sport, the nature of play also renders athletes to be infantilized a little bit. One of the things that Kelly is also pointing to is the ways that the upward economic mobility of African Americans in sport is used to kind of push this multiracial logic, he says, of play labor and the most intensely defended as a colorblind site of cultural practice. To be a site of multiracial unity, equity, he says, a, quote, colorblind site of cultural practice. And he says that thinking about the various ways in which the visual of what a Team USA looks like or to see what a team that comes together win a championship that has international players, black players, white players, Latino players, and the idea that sport can be used is like, look at us all doing a thing together. And at the same time, also upheld as, well, if these people made it, everyone should be able to make it. This is a story of triumph, of redemption. We love these stories in sport. And he says it becomes this tool that can be leveraged in a particular way 
of kind of like, what's your excuse? Or racism isn't a problem. Look at this person. Look how much this black person can make in this country. And so there's a way that sport, again, can be this double-edged sword of both potential and problematic that is very interesting, at least to me. He says, whereas it can be read as colorblind, it's definitely not genderblind, he says. The creation of these gender boundaries, and he goes back to this comparison to music, thinking about sports and music both do these things, especially in hip-hop, these gender boundaries that maintain male hegemony in the areas of production, promotion, and performance. So the ways that women artists, for example, let's say women rappers, are promoted versus their male counterparts, the ways that female athletes have to embody a certain kind of traditional femininity that is constantly telling us that they're a wife and a mother and all these things to make us feel safe. (laughs) That is very much not the expectation of men. We don't sit and talk about that, you know, I don't think that we spend nearly as much time talking about men as fathers as we do women as mothers in sport. It is not enough for a woman to be simply good at her craft on the, on the field, on the court, There's also a need to kind of either embody this safe motherly figure that can be admired for being able to have it all, or the female athlete needs to be read as sexually attractive to have some sort of tangible value to a male viewer. Now, here's where things get really, really slippery. He says, thinking about the various ways there has to be this sexual connotation that's invoked here whether as someone that has produced a child or someone that is sexually attractive or both right a lot of heavy lifting that women have to do in music and sport he starts to bring in the other kinds of forms of leisure outside of sport or art Um, he brings in sex he talks about the various ways in which thinking about public spaces there's also how sex operates thinking about something that is both a leisure activity as well as a form of labor And he says, because black women have less access than black men to public space, employment opportunities, entrepreneurial opportunities, and the most lucrative cultural opportunities, it has a profound impact on their daily social relations. So he says, sex remains one of these, these hustles when every other avenue is closed to you. So there is a way that this is embedded in having to both be able to kind of be sexy and be really good at your craft if you're a musician or an athlete as a woman especially as a black woman but then on top of that he's making this very clear connection he's like I'm not just using sex as this example or comparison I'm actually also thinking about how sex workers have to maneuver within a field of both like something read as leisure like sex as a form of pleasure and leisure as well as a form of labor for them and so now in a piece that you thought was going to be about basketball outdoors has morphed into this thing that combined music, sports, visual arts, and sex to think about survival, to think about leisure, to think about labor. There's no way that I think that Robin D.G. Kelly here, I don't think that he's conflating an NBA player and a sex worker together, but he is saying that the idea of public space potential and what's offered to you based on where you operate and at the intersection of race, gender, and class limits the options that are available to you. And in many ways, labor and leisure become often blurred for those that find few other avenues. I think the strongest point near the end of the piece, page 110, he says, in the struggles of urban youth for survival and pleasure inside of capitalism, Capitalism has become both their greatest friend and greatest foe. It has the capacity to create spaces for their entrepreneurial imagination and their symbolic work, 
to turn something of a profit for some, for them to hone their skills and imagine getting paid. At the same time, it is also responsible for a shrinking labor market, the militarization of urban space, and the circulation of the very representations of race that generate terror in all of us at the sight of a young black men and yet compels most of America to want to wear their shoes. Starting with the beginning, thinking about um, capitalism as the greatest friend and greatest foe, I also think about how play becomes labor across social media. I'm thinking about like TikToks where, you know, kids are coming up with dance moves and those dance moves become popular and there's a way that certain dancers are able to capitalize or not capitalize off of their labor. That's the next frontier that is not a public space. This is something you can do at home in the privacy of your home. They do occur in public spaces as well, obviously. But I'm thinking about what that means in terms of thinking about that in the same lens that he's thinking about the 80s and 90s through hip hop and sport. I think about what social media both gives and takes away from especially African-American youths that a lot of times their cultural creations are kind of commodified or appropriated by other folks, industries, corporations. And so your ability to profit off of your play is an ever-evolving space. The last piece of that, he says, the circulation of the very representations of race that generate terror in all of us at the sight of young black men and yet compels most of America to want to wear their shoes. He's speaking about the various ways in which, for example, we imagine that blacktop basketball, again, basketball in a park, that's read as unsafe. Who are these people? Why are they playing? It's a large group of these black men together. There's a way that that is inspiring this fear within a larger mainstream American logic of um, fear of the black male body in a particular way, he says, yet compels most of America to want to wear their shoes, right? So whether we're thinking about Michael Jordan, LeBron James, the way that these exact same figures that used to play in these exact same spaces are now multimillionaires that are able to leverage that to sell you something. That is this weird paradox of capitalism when we're thinking about something like sport. What I love about the Serena Williams piece, we start with Hanif on the courts that Kelly's discussing. We actually are seeing him playing basketball, even though we're about to talk about tennis, a very, very different sport in terms of thinking about the average race and class dynamics of that sport versus basketball. And then we're thinking about what it means to to conceptualize Serena Williams through her hometown of Compton. He says, the Compton that needs to be understood when discussing Serena Williams is the one that America has used so often for entertainment and irony, while simultaneously turning its back on the infrastructural failures that plague so many of the neighborhoods that kids from the suburbs have the luxury to wear on their tongues and on their bodies, but never in their hearts or minds, end quote. That's on page 233 of They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us. And one of the things that I love about that, if we're connecting the end of the Robin Kelly piece to the beginning of the Hanif Abdurraqib piece, and we're talking about Compton as something that can be, this idea that can be sold, um, this idea that something you can wear on your tongue, on your body, but not in your heart or mind, is the same kind of logic that's like this fear of a black male body playing basketball on a blacktop, but also can then be someone that you pay lots of money to go see a few years down the road. Same kind of thing. This way that Compton as a space can be used for entertainment and irony. And then he brings in the post-industrial here, turning its back on the infrastructural failures that plague so many of the neighborhoods that kids from the suburbs can constantly say, whether it's in lyrics or um, in the clothes that you wear. What does it mean for you know kids that have never been to 
Los Angeles, let alone South Los Angeles, to buy Nipsey Hussle Crenshaw sweatshirts. You know, there's a way that you can embody something with your clothes, he says, but not in your hearts or minds. Abdurraqib is pointing directly in the 80s towards the post-industrial landscape before and during the crack epidemic as he's looking back over what Compton meant, thinking about what it means for Serena Williams, Venus Williams, her sister as well, to enter into this very white upper class country club. We would say we call these country club sports like tennis and golf. What does it mean for Compton to embody something culturally, politically, and for them to emerge out of a space like Compton and enter in a, into a space like tennis? So he is both marveling at this transformative career that Venus and Serena have been able to have. And then he's dismayed at the desire for Serena's silence, having triumphed not only on the tennis court, but also across the racial, gendered, classed lines that she had to in order to to get to this place, to get to this form of success. And he says they want her silence through words like humble. Why can't she just be humble? And his retort is, There really is no measurement for how America wants its black athletes to be. Oftentimes, they are asked to both know their greatness and know their place at the same time, a landscape that becomes increasingly difficult to navigate depending on the sport they're in. When Deion Sanders starts high-stepping at the 40-yard line, he's still dancing. America's always been fine with black athletes doing the dance on the field of their choosing as long as they do the dance off of it. When Marshawn Lynch doesn't speak to the press, that's when people begin to feel cheated. To be black and a woman, and a black woman who is great, and a black woman who is great at tennis, is perhaps the trickiest of all of these landscapes, end quote. That's on page 35. And I really love that because it's about these expectations that are put on you. So where Robin D.G. Kelly is saying, wow, women can't just be rappers or athletes. They have to be sexy mother athletes and rappers and if you're too sexy they'll say well that's not how a mother should dress and then if you don't have kids they're like well she never had kids was she ever really successful at life and he's saying here in this this quote and thinking about Serena as well as folks like Deion Sanders and Marshawn Lynch two NFL players what does it mean for her to be not only great great at tennis And then also be expected to be, quote unquote, humble. Another really great quote from the piece, he says that, quote, for many people, the intersection of race and gender is an uncomfortable place. And Serena Williams' greatness sits firmly in the center of it. So much so that anytime she wins, there is no way to have a discussion that does not reduce her to her most black or her most woman. It isn't always explicit, of course, but one could argue that these things rarely are end quote that's page 235 and goes into 236 what does that mean especially the the end part I think he's getting at something here about being reduced to your most black or your most woman this idea of wanting to have an incredible victory is not enough there's a way that she's always read and if you think about the people that sit behind a desk these analysts that talk before and after events there's this very racially and gender coded language that's being used about her and other athletes as well that in many ways is always reducing you to your identity and not to your actual performance. And then there's a way that perhaps Hanif is getting at, she, in operating at the intersection of race and gender, 
is always going to be read that way, but then her performance comes out of that exact same history, that exact same lived experience, because she's had to live her entire life as a black woman from Compton. And the way that race, gender, and class are built into that structure are embodied in her style of play, as well as the way that she's read by others. It always comes down to the flattening of all of these things to read her as a particular black woman that can be considered a space invader by some, a cause for concern, or for others, a cause of celebration. The idea that we should ask Serena Williams to be more reserved, or we ask that, you know, she, quote, fit into the mold of decorum that we believe tennis should be, Hanif says, we're really telling her to silence the very things that drive her. We're asking her to not be great so that we can be comfortable. And the we is, I think, interesting because he never identifies who we is. He identifies that he is not part of the we because he wants her to not be humble. But he says, we're telling one of the most dominant athletes many of us will ever see to maybe keep it down a bit. As if any kind of dominance has stumbled upon silently, end quote. That's on page 236. And I really want to end on thinking about that, this idea of what we're asking African-American athletes to do. And I'm, these are two really contemporary examples. There's definitely a way we could have gone way more historical. I think people, when I say African-American athletes, people want to talk about, you know, integration or honestly reintegration of sports like football or baseball that have these very public moments where race is central. But I think I'm more interested in these very subtle moments, whether it's in non-professional sports, whether it's on the way that bodies are read when they pass by a park, or what happens when African-American athletes are outside of these traditional sports that people say are black sports. So basketball is like, we can understand black men playing basketball professionally. To consider Serena at this particular point in time is to be able to understand the dynamics of race, gender, and class all together in a sport that's a really dynamic sport to watch, whether you're in person or watching on TV. The way that Serena has captured this hold on larger sports culture, the way that people that may not have typically watched tennis watch it such an exciting style of play is worth noting. We can't tell someone like Serena to keep it down a bit, he says, because it's not as if any kind of dominance is stumbled upon silently. We'll talk about quite a few athletes that refuse to be silent in the next podcast when we think more about issues of, for example, protests in sport and thinking about what it means in terms of marketing sport through Black athletes. Have a good one.